again, I, I wouldn't have understood this was happening at the time, but then there's a bond then with somebody that you have maybe a similar experience with, you know, when there's a a kind of a, a shared knowing and, and a shared acceptance and, and then the hope that actually, do you know what, I can keep going. You know, I can learn how to live with this and I can still keep going and have a quality of life that is good. I suppose the one thing that always strikes me when I spend time around people like that who are part of my community, as I always say, um, I envy their belief and their uh, faith that it will happen, but ultimately their hope. Because sometimes I suppose, and listen, it's a blessing of course being being a scientist is that you're constantly looking for evidence. But sometimes I'm in that space where if the evidence isn't there, then the belief and the hope isn't there. And there's something quite hopeless about that. But I became very aware, Johanna, that if I, if I am recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body, I might actually have something to look forward to. I might actually enjoy something. I might actually get a job, go on a holiday, be in a relationship. You know, all of those kind of things that they were a million miles away from, from me. Welcome to Let's Talk About Recovery, a series of talks with Professor Johanna Ivers and recovery coach and founder of Recovery Hour, Sandra Losty. The series of talks has its origins with an International Women's Day collaboration with the professor and the recovery coach, where they talked about the point at which the science and the lived experience meets. Hello, welcome to Let's Talk About Recovery. I'm Professor Johanna Ivers, Assistant Professor in Addiction at the School of Medicine, Trinity College, and the Associate Dean of Civic Engagement and Social Innovation at Trinity College. And my dear friend and co-host, Sandra Lasty. Hello, my name is Sandra Lasty, Recovery Coach and founder of Recovery Hour. So Sandra, this week we're going to talk about um, recovery beyond the substance so you know where the threshold where we cross over from not talking about addiction and beginning the journey into recovery and and what that looks like um and the perceptions that people have around that i mean i suppose i i really wanted to you know you've got a stellar recovery career under your belt and you began this as a woman in recovery you're still a woman in recovery but what has been besides the the you know the maturing what have been the changes you've experienced coming in uh from your own perspective and and how do you think that's changed from your peers as well Mm, very interesting question um well when i stepped into the recovery space and it was an accident based approach that i went because i didn't know of any other alternatives if they were there Back in 1995, I don't know uh, what was there. And I suppose being in that fellowship, there was a a huge sense of security and a huge sense of of belonging and connection and people like me to a degree. So people like me uh, who drank and couldn't stop, that that was people like me. But then I was in a bit of a minority, given the fact that I was a woman and then my age, mm. you know, so there was very few of people my age around. And if they were, they were actually mostly men. They were lads. You know, there was a few other people, women around, but 
by and large, they would have been male. So, so we would have very much, very much focused on, on as is asked of us in the fellowship and in the, the traditions that we, we stick with the singleness of purpose, you know, and we, we talk about our problems as they relate to alcoholism. And that would have been respected, uh, by and large, it would have been respected. But at that time, you have to remember that was 1995. I'm sure we were in the, the, the middle of, of uh, another wave of, of heroin overtaking the whole city and the, the city being completely turned upside down with this, with this, um, with this issue. And people started to come in and started to talk about being cross addicted. And there would have been a, a noticeable kind of shift in the in the seats. You know, people weren't uh, comfortable with this or and didn't quite know how to address it. You know, nobody was saying you can't talk about drugs in here, you know. Um, but at the same time, the, it, it, it caused a kind of a rift because there was this little difference now that some people may not have been able to relate to, you know, and I was in a space where I, I didn't have the experience of the of the drugs, but I had the experience of being the, the young person in a room trying to get their act together. Okay. You know, looking for some sort of sense of belonging and connection and but didn't even know that that's what I was looking for. So so I would have connected with people based purely on age and. Maybe, maybe on some level with the women, you know, because they were women, but really it was the age we were all sitting there going, are we really, are we really this bad? We're only like in our twenties and, you know, maybe when we get older, it'll be grand. But yeah, there was, I don't know if that really answered the question, but there was, the difference now is, I suppose, is I'm definitely more open to understanding that it's not just one substance for, for people and people can make an improvement in their lives, even if they're continuing to use a, a lesser damaging or harmful substance to them and, and move out of the more damaging substance. But they're making those improvements in their life and they're they're getting a quality of life that they wouldn't have had if they had to completely do away with everything. Yeah, and it's interesting to me when I hear you say there was a noticeable shift in people and they were like, oh, you can't come in. You, you kind of said, oh, you know, it wasn't like they were saying you couldn't talk about drugs, but actually that was what they were saying, wasn't it? And it is continued throughout fellowship. I mean, the one thing we have is this kind of notion where certain peers in recovery might stigmatize another peer, as you say, because they don't fit that that kind of narrow lens that we touched on last time, which is that unless you're abstinent, you're not in recovery, yeah. um, which as we both know, you know, myself from clinical experience, yourself from personal experience and me from, from the scientific literature, um, it has very little to do with substance. And I think there's a noticeable shift in our field um, or our community, let's say, which is embracing people who still have a substance, maybe they're medically assisted, they were a heroin user, they're on methadone or suboxone now, um, and they're, you know, either stabilized or reducing their use, or they're a cocaine user and they only use at the weekend, so they're reducing the use. But there's a there's an acknowledgement and a notable shift towards what we're calling non-abstinence-based or medically assisted recovery. Mm. And that kind of stigma is being kind of broken down for people, which I would say is a very 
welcomed uh, piece because, you know, as we said, stigma is what kind of keeps people outside. So have you then seen that yourself? I know in terms of, you know, recovery hour, maybe tell people what recovery hour is and, and you know, the space that has grown irrespective of substance or behaviour. Yeah, I, I think two things there. One of the main things I think that I do need to say this is that a lot of people wouldn't have had experience of um, either a family member or themselves of a substance other than alcohol. So they were dealing with an unknown and, uh, and that was unpredictable and that creates a certain sense of insecurity or fear or, or you know, they just don't know. So there was that element of it uh, to that. But over time, we can see how families have been severely impacted by uh, drug, alcohol, gambling. You know, we're starting to see these multi multifaceted issues that people have in their family and their family is dealing with it. So I think there's much more of a um, maybe a little bit more understanding that, you know, we're we're not we're not dealing and probably haven't been dealing for a long time with the stereotypical, you know, alcoholic who was the the man in the overcoat with the with the long beard and the twine wrapped around his coat and his bottle of wine or sherry in his pocket. Like the, we would have seen these characters in the inner city. And somehow those stereotypes are still, you know, people are still kind of using those stereotypes of this is what an alcoholic looks like or this is what a drug user looks like, you know. So there's a lot more understanding that there is a multi, a multi-layered engagement with substances and behaviors for people who are in addiction, you know, and and that's quite complex. I, I totally get that. But I think there's more education around about that and people kind of get it. So what does that mean then for um somebody in a room? I think we're more familiar in our 12-step rooms, listening to people talking about the different ways that they cope when situations arise and they might go in for alcohol, but they end up uh, maybe buying a, a box of over-the-counter medication, you know, that that they're reliant on to kind of numb them out on some level, or they have a reoccurrence. And I really like that language around somebody having a reoccurrence of drug use rather than a relapse. I mean, relapse is quite is quite significant, but if they if they reoccur with the behavior, there's a way back from that. For me, there's a way back from that, you know. So I'm very happy to hear the language is changing. And what Recovery Hour set out to do was to uh, bring people into a room when the pandemic hit in 2020, because we were already talking openly on Twitter about being in recovery and supporting people and giving kind of affirmative messages and supportive messages to people who were, you know, new in or they had a, a challenge going on. So Recovery Hour was to open up to bring people in and take them off Twitter and into it, into a Zoom room. And as I said, our starting point was recovery and it didn't matter what you were in recovery from. So it didn't, doesn't matter whether you had spent the whole day in the bookies and no substance in your body other than the chemicals in your brain or whether you had a drink or drug or food issues. It didn't, it didn't matter uh, what that was. And what it did was it opened up a space where people could just talk without having a singleness of purpose, you know? And we started to learn about stuff that we never even thought about, you know? I began to understand my relationship with food 
by listening to several people from who would have gone to Overney Eaters Anonymous, I started to understand my relationship with food, listening to them. You know, I'm 27 years around. I have never looked at my relationship with food until then. Do you know? So it opened up that space where we were, we were hearing things. And I would always say, nothing, nothing has ever brought me anywhere close to the destruction I caused in my life the way alcohol did. Nothing. So if I'm using that as a measure, there's almost like a sense of you can do anything you want as long as you don't drink, you know, which is quite dangerous, actually. To That's a quite a dangerous message because it means I can engage in, in things that are quite damaging to me. But so long as it doesn't bring me to where that is, I'm OK. And I think even, you know, that opens up another space again within this level of of kind of judging other people's use against your use and you know I'm bad but I'm not as bad as her or she's bad but she's not as bad as your woman behind her um and so there is this almost you know rule of relativity so long as I don't go there I'm I'm okay but like you said you know and it's very important to say that, you know, there's, as I talked about last week, that there's great science behind mutual aid and fellowships and all the rest of it um, in that space. But when you opened up that virtual room for, for recovery hour, what you did was you brought people together with a single vision for recovery and they moved beyond that single vision you talked about a second ago, that fixation mm-hmm. on a substance or a single behavior and focused on the capital and getting what it is that will help them either get recovery for the first time or sustain recovery. And they are the things that we talked about before, which is, you know, when we look at why fellowship works or, or why mutual aid groups work, it's because of the connection, the community, the faith, um the goal setting the you know accountability to a you know another whether that's a, a spiritual accountability or a person that's in the room helping you work through your steps but again what we're starting to unpack is that everything other than the substance but still we have that layer of stigma and I suppose it's important to say what is stigma, but stigma is um, any attribute behavior or condition that is discrediting to a group. And then discrimination then is the unfair treatment of that group, you know, but by either an individual a community or a system or an institution. So, um, but in order to kind of continue with that and move away from the stigma, what was helpful in your recovery that you got back then and is still helpful today? Yeah, uh, I only wrote about this today, would you believe? Um, there were, people had superpowers, really, really people had superpowers and the superpower was they were thoughtful and they cared. Okay. Like absolute superpowers because they were strangers. They were strangers who held their hand out to me genuinely. You know, they weren't looking for anything. They weren't they weren't looking to dive in. They were looking to bring me in, you know, come on in, welcome. I think I said this last week, you know, cup of tea and a smoke and you're going to be OK. You're going to be OK. And. And, and that's what I mean about that. They were very thoughtful in their. 
in their approach in that they knew what that was like to come in and in, into a room of people you didn't know, feeling full of shame and full of guilt and full of remorse and full of all of those feelings that you don't want to feel. And they genuinely cared, you know, and to me, they're superpowers. They are actually superpowers because that was the connection that I didn't have in my life outside of the relationship with my sister, you know, and now I had it with, with people and it quite took me by surprise. You know, it was like I kind of got in under the radar without I didn't even realize that I had I liked this, you know, and then you can't bounce it out once it gets in under the radar. So. So what was helpful was those people being genuinely caring and, and very thoughtful um, telling me they understand, you know, telling me that they've they've been there without launching into 20 minutes of their story. You know, they they were able to relate to me and say, you know, I felt like you did, too. I felt I didn't belong here, felt it was too young, you know, felt oh, I'm a woman. There's loads of men around. I don't belong here in this room. And they were the things that I went. Actually, I do feel that, you know, that's where I related to. That was very, very helpful. Um, and what was even more helpful was telling me there was a solution, that there was a way out, that I didn't have to continue living like this. And that caught my attention that because it was one thing, it was one thing not drinking, but I had no idea of of how to be happy. I had no idea how to. How to just be Sandra, you know, I, I had no clue about any of that sort of stuff, you know, I was a, a bundle of of self-protective mechanisms and and behaviors <laughs> and they were anger, anger and anger, you know, mm-hmm. and they worked, you know, they absolutely worked, kept me alive in many occasions. So that was very helpful. Um, somebody showing me the way, a sponsor, having a sponsor. Um, somebody telling me they see me, they actually saw me. For as outgoing and extrovert as I am, Johanna, I know how to be invisible. You know, I, I, I'm very good at, you know, being invisible. So somebody saw me and um, and I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid when they said that. that I was like, oh, you know, that was extremely, extremely helpful. The fun, the crack, the banter, the humor. That humor that, that we have, that kind of self-deprecating humor. I know it might sound very negative, but that ability to laugh at yourself. To, you know, to take something that I had as huge in my head and find myself laughing about it like some sort of, uh, I remember, and this is one of the things I laugh about myself, is that uh, I, I have a, a thing about my teeth, you know, and uh, I went around with a toothbrush on the inside of a, I wore the Sanorac now, I mean, it was, it was never washed or anything, right? So, I mean, there was probably several life forms living on that Anorak and in it. And I had this toothbrush, I had it for ages, and um, because I, I heard when you vomit that the, the, the acid in vomit would break down the enamel of your teeth. So I wouldn't have washed myself for weeks and I probably hadn't eaten in God knows how long. But I brushed my teeth. I went into the bathroom and I brushed my teeth, you know. So there was that was a standard. <laughs> that, that was a standard that I had that was very important to me, you know, very, very important to me. I could have stunk to high heaven, but I brushed my teeth. You know, but being able to have like just the that's just ludicrous, you know, but I understand it. I do understand it. And just being able to have that ability to kind of laugh at myself. Um, it really does kind of take the edge off things. You know, that was very helpful hearing other people doing that as well. Well, and it was entertaining people's stories, 
are as difficult as they are, people have very entertaining stories, you know, and it was great just to be able to have a laugh. And it reduced the shame, I guess. It took yeah. the sting out of it, as yeah. you say, took the edge off. Yeah, completely, completely. And it does, it, it kind of helps you to kind of loosen up a bit and not be as guarded, you know. It's like there is a sense of, oh, thank God I'm not the only one. You know, there's definitely a sense of that. And then you bond. And again, I, I wouldn't have understood this was happening at the time. But then there's a bond then with somebody that you have maybe a similar experience with, you know, when there's a a kind of a, a shared knowing and, and a shared acceptance. And and then the hope that actually, do you know what, I can keep going. You know, I can learn how to live with this and I can still keep going and have a quality of life that is good. You know, I mean, it'd be remiss of us to focus solely on the positive because recovery is hard. I know I hear all it's fun, it's crack, it's hilarious, but I mean, it's difficult and it's, you know, it's tough and it brings people to the brink. Um, What were the unhelpful things being a 28 year old woman in a very fixed condition of of being in recovery these this kind of language that was set for you to be abstinent and all the rest where were the difficulties uh yeah uh, the age was the biggest one you know um and people I think thought they were helping me I thought they were um I I don't believe there was any kind of malice to when most people said this to me she's only 28 you know Mm. your whole life ahead of you you know she could change tomorrow kind of stuff and they would say that without knowing where where alcohol brought me, like they they wouldn't have known that part of the story um, or what I was dealing with. You know how, you know, that those coping mechanisms, they, they wouldn't have known any of that, but they would have just taken the age and basically kind of went, well, sure, I'm only 28, which could have fed my. Yeah, I am only 28. Like, what am I talking about? Uh, but my, I didn't have my. My drinking wasn't. I went out on a Saturday night and I drank too much and I woke up the next morning and I was able to go to work on Monday. Like that, that was not how I drank. And my goalposts for drinking shifted and shifted from, it started off like that Mm. in my, in my teens. But by the time I stopped, I was drinking in a field, you know? So, so just assuming that somebody is a particular age isn't, um, wasn't helpful at all. Uh, there was some there was some kind of, you know, assumptions made that I was, you know, again, stereotypical. You're, you know, you were drinking sherry or you were doing something behind the curtains. And I was even called, you know, you're too young to be a curtain twitcher. This is the kind of language that's that's very um, stigmatizing and very unhelpful, because if somebody does drink in their house and look at the court, you know, th- there's a sense of, well, I'm going to be judged if I go in here. You know, um, those kind of things were very, very, very unhelpful, very unhelpful. Um, where I was from, I'm from the north side of Dublin, I'm from Cabra. I was told I didn't stand a chance. You know, how many people in Cabra do you know, you know, stayed abstinent? And I was a bit like, uh, well, now you have a point there, you know, <laughs> because I didn't know anybody. I knew people who, you know, stayed off the, the drink for Christmas and Lent and all those kind of things or there was an event coming up and they had to save money, but I didn't know anybody in recovery. 
So those kind of things could have gone into my head and I could have entertained them and made a decision. Well, actually, yeah, people like me don't don't get recovery and don't get a quality of life. And people like me just do this all the time. You know, very, very unhelpful. The, the Probably the most unhelpful thing I was told was uh, you don't need to do the steps coupled with, you know, don't touch them for two years. You'd be grand. Just just you just keep coming to meetings. And the woman who had become my sponsor at that point, and this was very early on, this was, I'm talking maybe a month or something. And she said to me, Sandra, can you imagine not drinking with the way your head is now? That that's you. This is you now for two years. I My head nearly exploded off my shoulders at the idea. Because a lot of what was coming up for me was all the stuff that I couldn't cope with. And I, I drank to numb out. So I was very grateful for her and, and her honesty and her bravery for having that conversation with me. So um, because doing the steps is what made made the change and made the shift and made the difference. Very unhelpful things, but all very commonplace comments in that in that environment. Do you think those comments are still around today and people still say those things or? Oh, yeah. Change somewhat or? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly, particularly for young people, you know, we're, we're really, I suppose, coming to terms and understanding that people can decide, do you know what? I'm on a slippery slope here and I want off. I want I don't have to go all the way to the terminus. I, I don't want to go there. I want to make that change. And um, and you will hear things like, oh, sure, I spilled more on my tie or on my top or you know, I, I let more spill in the supermarket, bringing it from the, the the shelf to the cash desk. You know, those kind of judgments that are made where you grab somebody coming in who's 21 or 23 or 33 or whatever, and you're going, you made a great decision. You made a great decision to change your life. You know, they, they're very much still around. That, has, that hasn't lessened, you know, I'm hearing that on a regular basis well, up to the, the time of the pandemic with the face-to-face meetings, that would still be quite a common place if somebody young came in, but should, you know, wouldn't, they haven't put enough for a, to fill a hole in your tooth. Yeah. And as you say, really unhelpful. And it's interesting because my own experience of kind of other contexts, be it like, um, you know, international conferences or even collaborating with, with colleagues and particularly in the U.S., what we see is, and I had this conversation with a colleague of mine from, from the UK, people in America um, tend to get recovery much earlier than we get recovery here um, in terms of, you know, scientific literature. Um, so you're looking at the kind of mid-20s there to the mid-30s, maybe early 30s to mid-30s here. And it's interesting to kind of, as you say, this notion that you have to have had a certain career or length of time, which is a stupid metric. It's a stupid way to kind of try to measure something because people have experienced all sorts of things um, by the time they're a particular age. So it, it, it really isn't one that would be helpful. I, I could see that. I suppose I want to shift gear and talk about another space that I hear quite a lot um so when we think about fellowship we often think about faith and spirituality um knowing that that is one of the early uh first step in fact um 
and when I talk to people that say that fellowship is not for them, usually it comes back to this spirituality or this faith-based piece um, that, you know, people just don't want to enter into. And I suppose if we look at our history with the, you know, the Catholic Church in Ireland and and the relationships that people have had, you could see how that would be off-putting. But how was that for you? Was that something you found easy? Was it, you know, something you went to fellowship for? What was your experience? Yeah, um, I didn't have a huge, I suppose, religious teaching or leaning or experience up to that point because uh, I just going way back to to my dad when uh, my dad uh, took his own life and the the church refused to bury him. That was back in 1977, even though they knew he was a very unwell man mentally, like the man, the man had them tormented at five o'clock in the morning trying to get in to go to mass, you know, so there was knowledge there that he was a very unwell man, but still this rule kicked in, oh, took his own life, you know, sacred ground and all that sort of stuff. Now that did eventually get resolved. Um, but that was the moment my mother said, we're done with the church. And so that was it. We did, we did. I made me confirmation and that was it. Like we didn't do any regular going to mass or anything like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so I didn't have a, maybe I wasn't indoctrinated really, or I, I had really a very school what I learned in school kind of religion. So when I went into the fellowship, I did have this, this, um, belief or this assumption or or I don't know what it was you know what sure if there was a god there wouldn't be all the bad there is in the world so I went down that because it was all I knew it was the only kind of schooling I had but it quite clearly tells me in the third step you know that it's god as I understand him you know again my sponsor was very clear and very um, very conscious to say to me don't get too bogged down in the language if you want that to be a whore call a whore if you want that to be in it call it it you know um and that that gave me a sense of uh she was very clever was my sponsor she she it gave me a sense of of having con- control do you know what I mean I was like yeah I can call it what I want kind of thing right so so I bought into that I did buy into that but what I really bought into was the hope mm-hmm. I bought into that sense of hope that change was possible, change was possible, that I could change my life. And it very clearly tells me in the very start of the big book, as it's called, um, the basic text is affectionately called the big book. And it tells us that we will recover. We have recovered, 100 men and women who have recovered, and I say that deliberately, recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. So it doesn't say you're cured from your alcoholism, doesn't say you can drink after 10 years, doesn't say anything like that. It says you have recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body following the program. And I had a light bulb moment like that moment I had when I had my last drink. It was a a light bulb moment that is still with me. I understood that my body would get well because I didn't eat properly or I wasn't feeding myself properly. And, you know, all of that basic stuff was gone out the window. And my mind was savage in that there wasn't an ounce of hope. There was there was only life being a burden and life being really not worth living for. Now, I was aware that those thoughts were there, 
and they stayed there at that, you know, there was no action taken on them. But but I became very aware, Johanna, that if I if I am recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body, I might actually have something to look forward to. Might actually enjoy something. I might actually get a job because I didn't work, you know, I might actually go on a holiday, be in a relationship, you know, all of those kind of things that they were a million miles away from, from me. You know, you don't get, as my sponsor said to me, you don't get those things, Sandra, sitting in the field drinking. Those things are not, those things, they don't come to you sitting in the field, you know? So Mm -hmm. to me, the higher power, if you like, was that possibility and that hope that I could walk down the street and nobody be pointing their finger at me and I could just get on with it. So I had faith that that was possible. I didn't have a a being or a a deity as such. The group, the group was, was the people who had done it before me and they had done it. They were in jobs, they were in relationships, they were going on holidays, they were doing all that normal in me, I'm doing my rabbit's ears now, all that normal stuff. And the hope then became something that I I really, I I wanted to to get into a swimming pool and just immerse myself in it, you know. It's interesting because there's kind of like, it's a parallel almost, the way we talk about recovery has very little to do with the substance you used well faith has very little to the power that you worship because when we break it down i think what we're talking about is two things it's hope and belief and i often have this conversation with you that um you know when i talk about to somebody that's really in recovery you know they're living it and they can tangibly see that i used to be here like you say drinking in the field and there was not m- much more to me day than getting as much substance whether it's drugs or drink to keep me going for the day that was my single vision and i was parked there for the day and nothing much helped few characters came in and came out but beyond that nothing much helped yeah. and here they are as you say whether it's 6 months some people get it quick you know quicker or 2 years down the line but there's all of this other stuff in their life they're living a better quality of life they're engaged with education or training if that's their thing they might have a job they might but they will have better more meaningful relationships they'll be contributing to family community society so they have these tangible measurable things that they know they have now as you say and and they looked forward to having it and they looked at someone that had it before them and said that's where I want to be so they have this picture life and I suppose the one thing that always strikes me when I spend time around people like that who are part of my community as I always say um I envy their belief and their uh faith that it will happen but ultimately their hope because sometimes I suppose and listen it's a blessing of course being being a scientist is that you're constantly looking for evidence but sometimes I'm in that space where if the evidence isn't there then the belief and the hope isn't there and there's something quite hopeless about that so Mm. When I see people in recovery, I, I I do, and I say that in the most genuine sense, I envy them being there in the sense that that's where I want to be. 
I look yeah. at them to, you know, to the to the role model and, and say that. So, but yeah, I mean, to go full circle with it, it's it's really interesting space when we when we really break recovery down. And you know, I'm mad into this and you give me a hard time about always wanting to measure stuff <laughs> and uh, you can measure it that's the thing I hear people say all the time oh but it's the stuff you can't measure you can measure anything um but uh and in science you know we we will always find a workaround um and then you just have to describe what's wrong with that but anyway we can measure it and we can see it and it is tangible and as I say it's very little to do with substance and that's a very interesting parallel that we've got to now that actually having faith is very little to do with who you worship or what you worship, as you say. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, and, and again, what, you know, I think what was very clear in what you said is it's, it begins with you and you're mm. the one that calls the shots. Exactly. Like you say, whether it's a he, she, or an it, um, you say whether it's up in the sky or down on the ground and the same with, with, with recovery it, it begins with the person and whatever's working for them be it on 80 mils of methadone and living their best life or you know not drinking or not gambling or whatever that looks like for them but it is important for us to kind of yeah for that self-direction isn't it absolutely and if I if I hadn't have allowed that to surface, you know, if I hadn't allowed that, that little pin, I always call it a pin had a willingness, you know. Um, if I hadn't have, have engaged that tiny little amount, because it was all I needed, do you know what I mean? It was, it was, it was all that was needed to kind of open that up and go, actually, maybe that's possible for me, you know, and 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 then then i suppose the how of all of that starts to unfold you know mm. um but it's yeah it has to for me anyway it definitely if i hadn't people had told me and i kind of got it conceptually but until i actually experienced it then i would have been just going along with a head kind of a head of information but not an experience of it you know and uh, and that is what that you know there's a chapter in the big book called the spiritual experience and to me that's what that what a spiritual experience was I actually became open to the possibility that I could have a half decent life and you know not be pointed at walking down the street you know and be be productive and be a, a you know a, a member of society that contributes you know so that's all of that for a pinhead of willingness that's not a bad deal no it's not a bad deal and just I suppose in terms of because you're probably one of the you know the people in my phone book that pays it forward the most I know but in the spirit of paying it forward what do you think you know as women or as members of fellowship or as a community of people in recovery what's the important thing that we can all do to pay it forward for the people coming up the ranks. Yeah, I think uh, maintain maintain what we have, you know, maintain it and try and try and make it a, a attractive. You know, that is one of the sayings. It's a it's a program of attraction, not promotion. You know, so we're we're not going out evangelizing. <clears throat> excuse me, we're not going out. You know, kind of banging tambourines or anything like that to say look at this is this is recovery but when when people ask 
you know, how did you do it? Give them the very simple steps, the simple, simple steps and give them the very simple handout, you know, and, and a little bit of hope and say you're going to be OK. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be OK. And, it, it, you know, I think that's the, the best thing that we can do. And if you feel somebody is out of your reach or maybe you're, you're not able to connect with them, contact somebody else who you think might be able to help them. You know, but uh, in all honesty, Johanna, like, and I said this at the start, people who care make a difference. You know, I didn't go in there and I didn't assess people and go, did you have exactly the same experience as me? Because I can only relate to people who had exactly the same experience as me. I met people who cared. They cared about people who were suffering. And that that to me is what made made that difference. So pay it forward, care about people. Um, give them give them those very basic steps of it's going to be okay. A little bit of hope, maybe some information around how to get get support and get some help, and um, and keep living your best life. You know, keep keep maintaining this recovery and and building those great lives that are going on out there in the communities around around the world. Yeah, it's there to be seen. And I suppose it always surprises me pleasantly, but, you know, at the same time, when we talk about what works, it always comes back to the simple compassion, empathy, being a kind person. Um, it isn't rocket science. It's We can all play our part. So, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you. That was quite unexpected, but thank you. <laughs> well, it's always emotional, but anyway. Always uh, emotional, <laughs> That's been really good. And that's it from me. And that's it from me. Over really now. Cool. You've been listening to Let's Talk About Recovery with Professor Johanna Ivers and recovery coach Sandra Losty.